0: By definition, anything that the pig says is against your best interest, and it doesn't care. The pig is actually sociopathic by definition. What this allows you to do is muster the energy and aggression that you need to take control like an alpha wolf. I mean, if you think about it, an alpha wolf, if it's challenged for leadership in the pack, does not say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. It growls and it snarls and it says get back in line or i'll kill you it asserts its superiority so this is a game of ruthless domination it's not a game of nurturing your inner wounded child back to health you can do that separately
1: this is not your inner wounded child hello friend and welcome to episode 46 of the feeling full podcast i'm Mordechai, an entrepreneur and coach who struggled with being overweight for nearly two decades but since 2012, I've lost 130 pounds and have kept it off. Join me and my guest today to discover how it's possible and even simple to lose weight with ease without going on crazy diets, without doing intense workouts. If you're ready to give up quick fixes and fad diets and build a fulfilling relationship with your body and food, this show is for you. Today, our guest is Glenn Livingston, PhD. Glenn is an author, longtime psychologist, and was the CEO of a big consulting firm that worked with some of the major food manufacturers. His book, Never Binge Again, is a very popular book on how to end overeating by understanding your mind and your compulsions. Glenn is someone who struggled with his own weight, and has spent decades researching why we binge eat and overeat. For eight years, Glenn journaled what he did, how he managed his mind, the techniques that worked for him that ultimately led him to gain control over his binging and lose 80 pounds in the process. Eventually, he turned his journal into a book that's called Never Binge Again. In our conversation today, Glenn shares some of the secrets he's discovered working with big food manufacturers, what they're doing to get you addicted to their food products, and how this is not a problem of personal willpower. We get into ways you can manage your cravings and your mind by understanding the voices in your head and learning how to live a more healthy life regardless of the billions of dollars spent to get you hooked on unhealthy food. Alrighty, thanks for joining and let's jump right in. Hey Glenn, it's uh, great to have you here today. I've been looking forward to it all week. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've actually been looking forward to this interview, I think, for three years. I think we started talking over email a few years ago when I was talking about interviewing you, and I'm glad it f- finally worked out. I'm glad we worked this out. So, you know, your book was really impactful when someone sent it to me a few years ago to read. I really loved the pragmatic and like just the strategic approach that you, you look at food with. I mean, not only did your book have over, I think it was seventeen thousand reviews on Amazon,
0: like 12,000.
1: 12, 12,000? Oh, okay, twelve thousand. Yeah. I don't know why I thought seventeen, but hey, it's going to have seventeen eventually, right? So, hey, we're just yep. you know optimistic here.
0: Still more than the Da Vinci Code.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with a title "Never Binge Again," I was just, I'm just really excited about that because obviously this is something that I've thought a lot about, and a lot of the things that you talk about in your book are things that I agree with and have discovered as well my own journey. So I just want to just, you know, take us back to early days of Glenn, you know, do you have like an earliest memory when you realized binge eating was a a real problem in your life?
0: Um, Probably around when I was 17. And if you'd ever been to the, um, deli on middle neck road in great neck, and you found that they were out of chocolate and pizza, there's a good chance that I was there before you. Mm. Um, I'm six, four, I'm modestly muscular and. I discovered that if I could work out for a couple of hours a day, that I could eat whatever I wanted to, a pizza or two, like a whole pizza, not a slice, you know, half a dozen chocolate bars, dozen donuts. And at the time, I thought it was a great thing. Like Doug Graham says, kind of like a superpower. I spent my my early years eating, 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 sleeping it off, working out. And I was thin and it didn't really bother me. But when I got a little older and I was married, like 22, 23 years old, and I was commuting for two hours each way to graduate school to see patients and take classes. And then when I got home, I was helping with the business. I was married and, you know, God forbid my my ex-wife, she was my wife that wanted to talk to me. I just didn't have time to work out anymore, but I found that the food had taken hold of me, like it had a life of its own. And it didn't bother me for a little while longer until I actually started seeing patients that were higher risk. And if you know anything about psychology, it's, um, it's not really an intellectual endeavor. I mean, it is, you have to know a lot of things, but you have to lend people your soul. You have to be fully present and lend them your soul. And I was having trouble doing that because I'd be sitting with a suicidal patient and I'd be thinking, when can I get to the pizza place and get a whole pizza? Or, you know, when can I get to the deli and dislodge my jaw and open the deli tray into it? And that actually bothered me more than the waiter or anything at first, because um, I come from a family of 17 psychotherapists, my mom and my dad and my stepmom and my stepdad and my sister and her husband. And, you know, if, if something breaks in the house, everybody knows how to ask it, how it feels, and no one knows how to fix it. <laughs> and, and I always, uh, I wanted to be a psychologist more than anything else in my life. That was my really first and only goal. And so that's what I was kind of an odd duck because that's what bothered me more than the weight, even though I was gaining weight. And being a psychologist from a family like that, I tried to solve it with a psychological approach. Essentially, I thought there was a hole in my heart. And if I could figure out how to fill that hole in my heart, maybe I wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. Mm. And I, I went to the best doctors. You can imagine I would know them back then, right? Psychologists, psychotherapists, psychiatrists. I took medication for a while. I went to Overeaters Anonymous. This was over the course of many, many years. And it was a very soulful journey. I learned something from everybody that I saw. I don't regret it, but it didn't really help me with the binge eating because it was more like I, um, I would get a little thinner and then a lot fatter and a little thinner and a lot fatter. There were several things that made me change my paradigm probably about 25 years later. After a very long and painful journey and being yelled at by doctors that i was going to die soon from high triglycerides and you know having trouble with rosacea and psoriasis and all types of inflammatory things my thyroid and i remember my triglycerides were over a thousand at one point and my top weight was probably around 280. but but along the way because my wife was um she was a marketing researcher and she traveled for business and we didn't have kids I had time for a second career. And what I wound up doing was consulting largely with big food and big pharma. I feel like I was on the wrong side of the war.
1: Was this before you lost the 80 pounds?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I wasn't 80 pounds overweight the whole time. I I was up and down and I probably needed to lose 40 or 50 pounds most of the time.
1: Just, just, Just for clarity. So while you're, after seeing patients, you started consulting for big food companies. At the same time. At the same time.
0: Yeah. I, I worked at home. I didn't commute. My wife was out of town all the time. <laughs> Got it. I, and we didn't have kids. So I had a dog. It, that was about it. Got it. So so I was consulting during that period. And I was heavy during that period for the most part. know I'm about 211 this morning. And I think um, it was 280 at my top. So and I'm a little happier at 200. I was injured for a good part of the year. And I couldn't exercise. And
1: I'm sorry to hear that
0: that's okay. I'm better. I'm better. I've got full clearance. So what happened was, as I was consulting for these big companies, something came to my attention, which started to change my paradigm into thinking that maybe my psychology didn't really have that much to do with it. Because um, I saw that they were spending millions, if not billions of dollars to Engineer these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and cytotoxins and salt, and they were all designed to hit the bliss point of the reptilian brain without giving us enough nutrition to feel satisfied. And the result of that is you keep going back for more. Your nervous system downregulates its pleasure response because it's not used to such um, such intense stimulation. And so, whereas you maybe naturally would be attracted to, you know, fruit and vegetables and natural whole foods, your survival responses are taught that really what you need are chocolate bars and bags and boxes and containers. And every time you're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or a container, there's some fat cat in a white suit with a mustache just laughing all the way to the bank, right? Mm. To, um, and, and so I saw that and I said, well, that doesn't have anything to do with um, the fact that I'm sad or unhappy in the marriage or, you know, that my mama didn't love me enough when I was a kid. I looked at the advertising industry and was highly exposed to that. And I saw that people think advertising doesn't affect them, but that's just where the advertisers want you because then your sales resistance is down. But these companies, for the most part, really know what they're doing. they're, They're spending a fortune. Also, to convince you that the good stuff is in their stuff, in their bags and boxes and containers. I'll give you an example. A friend of mine was the vice president of a major food bar manufacturer that everybody would recognize if I mentioned it, so I'm not going to so that I don't get in my butt sued. <laughs> and what he told me as he was leaving the company was that their most profitable insight was when they took the vitamins out of the bar, and they put the money into the packaging instead. So here we have, and they, they made very multicolored, vibrant
1: packaging a diverse number of colors. And in nature. Oh, hold, you know, on the, t- hold, hold on a second. just They they took the vitamins out of the bar. And instead of putting them in the bar, they invested it in, in the packaging of the product. Yeah. Whoa. Right? Scary. Wow. And I don't mean to single them, them out. It goes on across the food industry. Right, but that's just—I mean—that's ludicrous. The fact that companies are actually thinking in that way—it's
0: legal. It's legal to do it. It's
1: legal to do mm-hmm. a lot of things.
0: Unfortunately, we, we need more regulation, but that's another story. But but just to illustrate, make sure you really understand—they made the bar very color, the packaging very colorful and vibrant. And if you've heard the phrase "eat the rainbow," that's because a multitude of diverse colors in nature would signal a multitude of diverse nutrient availability. So when you have a big salad with dark green lettuce and blueberries and purple cabbage and yellow carrots and red tomatoes, you're actually more likely to acquire all the nutrients that you need. And so these big companies know from an evolutionary perspective that, you know, we are instinctively looking for that, but they're, They're preying on those instincts without actually putting the nutrition in there for a profit, right? And that happens across the industry. The industry is really a master at providing what I call plausible deniability because what consumers want is not necessarily all the nutrition and to know that they're doing what's best for them. They want to be able to eat all the junk, but then have a justification for believing that it's actually best for them. you know, these potato chips are made with avocado oil never mind they still have a ridiculous number of calories per ounce never mind that we're saying that a serving is 10 chips even though we know that nobody eats 10 chips but never mind the fact that um, you know heated oils are almost always found to be carcinogenic in um in studies never mind the fact that the roasting process creates acrylamides that um, can also be carcinogenic but you know, they've got avocado oil. <laughs> so, right. So, so and, and so there's all this plausible deniability. It's, like, it's like
1: organic chocolate with like cane sugar inside. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah.
0: And, and I'm all for being less harmful when you can. And I'm, And, you know, I don't tell my clients they have to give up potato chips. I help people to have things in moderation if that's what they really want. But it's scary when you see how good... You know how good they are at measuring these things and how they can use galvanic skin response and pupa dilation and other signs of interest to, to influence
1: you. While working for these companies, did you notice anything aside from that crazy story about the bars and the packaging, but anything else that was really surprising to you? The
0: a couple of things. One is the way that the food is prepared. So when you're seeing uh, you know, a commercial for a hamburger for example and you're looking at you know this delicious video of the hamburger with um you know it obviously looks like it's very juicy and that it's also shining and you know it's kind of all puffed up well what you don't know is that they do a lot of preparation with things that have nothing to do with food you know they could paint the food they can puff it up with air they can photoshop it afterwards you're not really looking at food when you think you're <laughs> At food. Mm. <laughs> so there, there's that. And then I remember learning, this is actually from one of my clients more recently, but I remember learning that um, they're taking advantage of flavor variability to keep people eating. So, you know, like we were talking about before, we're looking for a diversity of micronutrients and those come with a diversity of tastes. And so when your brain is presented with a variety of a taste, it will keep eating because it thinks it might be finding a source of a diverse nutrient source, right? And so the way that they simulate that, for example, in a bag of you know, corn chips, is that they don't make them all on a single assembly line with the same ingredients. They have, you know, several assembly lines and they vary the ingredients and the tastes in barely perceptible ways, but it, you know, just keeps you going. Oh my gosh.
1: Yeah. yeah. That so, they're using different, like slightly different ingredients to kind of capitalize on your taste buds. When you have a bag of chips, you're not every chip does not taste exactly the same. Oh, um, wow. Yeah, that's the first time I'm hearing that.
0: Yeah, I heard that from a client, but it doesn't surprise me. And the amount of research that goes into finding the bliss point you know, there is a certain level of spice that produces the exact right amount of bliss. And when you provide more than that, the bliss goes way down. And so they're very concerned with finding the exact right level of ingredients to maximize the the bliss response. They're not as concerned if there's nutrition in that, but they're concerned about maximizing the bliss response. Um, Very true for sugar, very true for something like vanilla. There's a certain amount that is delicious. And after that, it starts to taste bad. And they know exactly where that is. So yeah, I mean, this was... um, it was about 20 years ago that I predominantly stopped working for those companies. So I'm a little out of date with some of the things they're doing, but that, that was all true. So between those two things, I said, I said, it's probably not the fact that my mama didn't love me enough and that I have to love myself more in order to stop binging. This is, this is a direct attack on the reptilian brain. And when you, Look at the reptilian brain and what it's responsible for and the way that it reacts to the world. It's kind of an eat, mate, or kill philosophy. It's like a bad college drinking game. When it looks at something in the environment, it says, Am I supposed to eat that? Am I supposed to kill it? Or am I supposed to mate with it? There's no love there. And so I thought, Well, now this is really interesting. So the feast and famine response, that, that feeling like you urgently need to eat something. That's really a survival response from our primitive brain, but the primitive brain doesn't really know love. It knows eat, mate, or kill. It's not until you get to the mammalian brain that has a you know, well-developed limbic system. I, a neurologist would take me to task on some of this, but I'm giving you a very broad overview because I'm, I'm a psychologist, not a medical doctor, by the way, I have just read a lot about this. The mammalian brain, before you eat, mate, or kill something, it says, wait a minute, What impact is this going to have on the people or other mammals that I love? You know, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, we really have to think about that. So it says, hold on, we can moderate this response based upon those goals. That's not until you get to the mammalian brain and then the neocortex, the most recently evolved, or actually doesn't really matter if you believe in evolution or not, because God could have put it there. But the highest part of the brain says, before you eat, mate, or kill that thing, not only should you think about what impact it has on the People that you love, but what about your long-term goals? What about diet and weight loss? What about um, your spirituality? The kind of person you're trying to be in society? What impact does this have on, you know, the broader things that make you human? And so, it became clear to me that maybe loving myself more was not really where it was at. Maybe it had to do with um, utilizing my higher brain to take advantage of this lower bodily organ in much the same way as my higher brain controls my bladder and my testicles. You know, that sounds a little silly, but you know, Mordecai, if I I really had to pee right now, I don't, but if I did, I would tell my bladder that, look, I hear you, but I'm in the middle of an important meeting and we'll get to it when it's done. I would take control. I'm superior to my bladder. Now, I have to take care of it sooner or later. I have to attend to my genuine, authentic, biological needs. But that doesn't mean running out of the interview to go pee. Similarly, if there's a really attractive woman on the street, I don't run up and kiss her. Really attractive stranger. I would never do that. The truth is I don't approach them that often anyway because I'm kind of shy. (laughs) But I'm expected as a member of a civil society to control those impulses, even though it's a very powerful biological urge. So I said to myself, I should be able to take control. This is just a biological urge. I should be able to take control if I attend to my authentic you know, biological needs. So it's not just not having the chocolate, but figuring out if there was an authentic um, biological need underneath that. And I eventually was able to give up chocolate by having a lot of um, kale and banana smoothies, sometimes with celery juice. So there were actually some minerals and energy that I was craving that I wasn't aware of. And the kale and banana smoothies would not make me high the way that chocolate does. I think that a lot of these um, people think they're eating for comfort, but they're really eating to get high with food. And, you know, the chocolate bar, we didn't have chocolate bars in the Savannah. It's an unnatural concentration of um, pleasurable substance. And I, I think that we're eating to get high with food. That's an important change of paradigm because most people don't want to think of themselves as an addict. They you know, prefer to think that they're comforting themselves. So I always say, look, if chocolate, if you were really eating chocolate or bagels or pizza to quote unquote numb out, that's what people say when they have difficult emotions and that trigger a binge. Then when you went to the dentist, the dentist would say, Hey, Glenn, I am out of Novocaine. Is it okay if I inject you with some chocolate or a bagel? And then they kind of laugh and they'd say, okay, there's something else going on. So I, I, Realize those three things.
1: So that's a really powerful point you're saying about like you wouldn't right now pee because we're having this conversation together, right? Because it, but it's not, you know, you train yourself that way. But also there's like a social norm to that. You know, like the things that you're mentioning, society has, we've developed in a way which we do and act certain ways. But for, when it comes to food as a whole, you know, it's completely normal to sit down and eat a bag of chips or two or three even and chocolate. It's, it's
0: encouraged. It's encouraged. Right. So yeah. it's like
1: that the argument, well, the argument, I, I heard the theory behind it. I'm curious, how do you think about when it comes to the psychology of like challenging your environment when everyone around you is encouraging you, right? Like you said, on TV, the commercials, everywhere you go, you're encouraged to eat another donut or to have another bag of chips or another Pringle. You know, we live in a society where everybody seems to have tacitly
0: agreed to slowly kill themselves with food and laugh it off and make justifications for it. We, we live in that kind of a world. And I think it was Shikardo Krishnamurti, if I'm pronouncing his name right, that said, it's no measure of health to be well adapted to a profoundly sick society. Wow. That's powerful. It's no measure of health to be well, well adapted to a profoundly sick society. So that's actually one of the more advanced concepts that I teach people. And I first just want to make the point that we are biologically superior, even though it's more difficult than, you know, giving up heroin because heroin's not socially encouraged, and eating badly is socially encouraged. We are biologically superior, and we do have the capacity to insert a space between stimulus and response. We do have free will. We do have the ability to um, disempower a lot of those thoughts. So the last thing that changed my paradigm is that I'd done this 40,000 person study back in the days when internet clicks were cheap. And I I was being paid a lot of money to do marketing research studies at these big companies. And I figured I'll do one for myself to try to figure this out. I intercepted people when they were searching for solutions to stress, work stress, home stress, just the word stress, stress management. And I asked them what foods they found they were unable to stop eating once they started eating them, if they were stressed. And I found some interesting correlations. And I kind of asked them a bit about what they were stressed about and some personality variables. And I found that people who struggled with chocolate like me, they tended to be feeling lonely or brokenhearted or in some way stressed in a relationship. And they tended to turn to chocolate. People who were stressed about work tended to turn to salty, crunchy things like, you know, chips or pretzels or things like that. And people who were stressed at home with the kids and things like that, they, they tended to turn to um, soft, chewy things like bagels and pasta and pizza and like soft, chewy, starchy things. And I thought this was really interesting. So before I went and talked about it publicly, I called my mom, who's also a psychotherapist, and raised me, right? And I said, Mom, where did this come from with me? I have this interesting theory and these findings in this research, and I, I do drink the chocolate first and foremost, and I'm unhappy in the marriage, but what, where did this come from? And she gets this horrible look on her face, Um, this was on skype so i could see her (laughs) so she she gets this horrible look on her face and she says honey i'm so sorry i am so sorry And i said mom look we're talking about 40 years ago Uh, i totally forgive you i love you i just want to know and she said well honey when you were one year old in 1965 my father had just got out of prison your grandfather my father and he was my salvation my whole life and i idolized him and i did not know that he was guilty and it just blew my world apart, destroyed me. And then on top of that, your dad was a captain in the army and they were talking about sending him to Vietnam and we were trying to get pregnant with your sister. So I was devastated and incredibly anxious on both of those friends. And honestly, when you came running to me for love or something healthy to eat or just to play, I didn't always have it with me. Probably half the time I was just sitting and staring at the wall like in an almost catatonic state. And so what I did was I kept a big bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup. I'm aging myself by using that brand. I kept it in a refrigerator on the floor, small little floor refrigerator. And I'd say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And you'd go crawling over to the refrigerator. You'd take out your Bosco. You'd suck on the cap, suck on the bottle, and you'd go into a a chocolate sugar coma. And at that point, I said, Wow. That is, you couldn't have a clearer connection. This should really be a movie moment. And if it were a movie moment, then mom and I would have a big hug and a big cry and we would forgive each other. And I would never have trouble with chocolate again, right? But what happened instead was that there was this little voice in my head and my, my chocolate eating actually got worse. I mean, we, we did have a hug and it was a really good conversation to have. And I learned a lot more about her and she learned a lot more, a lot more about me. And I found that I was more forgiving of myself. I stopped yelling at myself so much about um, my overeating. But what happened behaviorally was that I heard this voice of justification in my head that said something like, um, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. And she left a great big chocolate-sized hole in our heart. And until we can find the love of our life and get out of this marriage, You're going to have to go right on binging. Yippee, let's go get some right now. And that was a pivotal moment for me because I realized I was going about it with the wrong paradigm. And I realized that maybe emotional upset was not the problem. Or or maybe, maybe you could sever the link between emotional upset and overeating without actually having to fix the emotional upset. Kind of like if the emotions were a fire in a in a well contained fireplace they would be an asset and not a liability people would gather around a well contained fireplace with a roaring fire and they would make memories they would share stories they would laugh they would cry they would you know they would eat and i said so really the issue is to create that fireplace that no ashes can get through and maybe this voice of justification is poking holes in the fireplace at this point i did something kind of silly, which I'm embarrassed about. As a sophisticated psychologist who's been, you know, in the New York Times, the LA Times, and all over the media, published all these articles. I was not working with eating disorders at that point, by the way, because I had one myself and I didn't think it was ethical. And I, well, (laughs) I decided I was gonna draw a very clear boundary between healthy and unhealthy eating. So I remember my first rule was, I will only ever eat chocolate on the weekends. And, you know, I'll never have it on a weekday. And I said, well, if I hear a little voice in my head that says, Glenn, you worked out hard enough and you're not going to gain any weight, even though it's a Wednesday, you might as well just start over again with your silly chocolate roll tomorrow. Go ahead and get some now. It's really fine. Yippee, let's go get it. I would say, wait a minute. That's not me. That's my inner pig. I, know this, I wish I didn't call it a pig. I wish I called it a food monster or something because... A lot of women that hate that I called it a pig, but um, I was not going to share this. This is my personal goal to get over um, binge eating. I said, that's my inner pig and chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. There was a part of that that was a miracle and a part of it that really wasn't. The part was that that was a miracle was it would wake me up at the moment of impulse and remind me that I had the power to make a choice. I mm. no longer felt like, right? Yeah, wow. I no longer felt like I was driven by this mysterious force inside. It wasn't so confusing. Now, did I always make the right choice? Not right away. But by knowing that I could and taking a moment to experience what the pig was actually saying, what was that voice of justification? I started to have the opportunity to examine the false logic in the justification. So, for example, when the pig would say, it's just as easy to start tomorrow, you might as well binge today because you're not going to gain any weight. Well, I started to look at neurological research about learning, and it turns out that the brain looks to connect urges and rewards. So if you have an urge, if an urge to eat chocolate and then you eat chocolate, and if that urge was accompanied with a thought, then both the urge and the thought will be wired more thoroughly to the result, which was having chocolate. If I think it's just as easy to start tomorrow, and then I have chocolate, I've just rewarded that thought, and I'm more likely to have that thought tomorrow than I did today. And because I had an urge, and I rewarded that urge, I'm more likely to have the urge again. tomorrow.
1: Wow. Wow, that just landed for me in a really big way, too. Tell me. And I've heard this before, and I've, I mean, I've, I listened to your book on audio, so I've heard this. And it's a concept that I'm, that I've thought about, but the idea that, so for me, when I feel, when I feel sad or sad for myself, I also think of sweets. And so I have a very similar pattern. I used to, you know, I grew up eating pastries and loved, you know, loved baking, loved chocolate cake, very similar to you in that way. And now when I feel, you know, often when I get down on myself and feel sad, I can often crave those foods. In specific, the ones you know, I, I think I've gotten a lot further from it, but I'm totally, I totally have experienced exactly what you're sharing as well. I agree with you. Pig is, <laughs> pig's a little aggressive, but it is what it is. I know that your your book actually came from your diary, right? You didn't weren't planning on publishing it. You wrote a diary for what, what was eight, seven, eight years, seven yeah. or eight years, eight years. And then it, it turned into a book, which I think it's, which says, you know, you didn't write it, you wrote it for yourself, which I think makes the best books, right? When you write a book for yourself, you weren't writing it to become a best-selling author. But so I think that's really cool. And the idea of having a name for that voice in your mind has been really powerful for me as well. In my mind, I I call my voice Teddy. So I it, I think the idea is it just helps me differentiate it's not really me. It's just a voice. It's just a thought. It's just I'm, and it's, it's just a thought that I'm thinking, and I don't. Ha- it's not necessarily Mordecai thinking it. It's it, you know you create another identity so you can actually see it from a distance, and that way it's allowed me to just create more space in making those decisions, um, and knowing that it's not like there's not one voice, and I have to go do the thing that I'm programmed to to do because of the way I grew up. Like we have the ability to change that by creating these little. gimmicks or mind tricks or whatever you would call them you know and
0: without that people don't really distinguish the destructive thoughts from the constructive thoughts but without a really clear goal in mind with a really clear line between what's the desired behavior and the undesired behavior then you don't really have a way to define what thoughts are constructive versus destructive even though you kind of sort of know but by getting to 100 percent clarity about what's a destructive thought then you know that that needs you to either be able to ignore that thought or focus on it to disempower it so you can't ignore it later on i think this is part of the reason that food addiction can go on forever because people really feel both ways i should have the chocolate bar or i really shouldn't have the chocolate bar and there are a million different or a million different ways you could do it and what we're told in our society is that you should indulge in moderation so eat healthy 90% of the time indulge 10% of the time. So let's say you apply that to chocolate. The problem with that, even though it's good in theory, like if you could actually accomplish eating healthy 90% and indulging 10% of the time like that, that would be good. The problem is you don't know which is the 10% and which is the 90% without a really clear rule that defines it. And if you don't know which is the 10% and which is the 90%, then every time you're in Starbucks in front of a chocolate bar, you have to expend your willpower and your brain glucose on figuring out, is this part of the 10 or part of the 90, this is the time I should have it or should I not. So you're actually better off because willpower is the ability to make good decisions. You're actually better off not forcing yourself through hundreds of unnecessary food decisions all week long. You're better off saying, well, I'll only ever have chocolate the last three days of the calendar month. So if you want to accomplish 10%, then that's what you could do. Um, And that way you don't have to make food decisions all month long and wear down your willpower. This willpower depleting function of decision-making, by the way, has been proven with non-food as well as food. So if you force people to do math problems before you give them the opportunity to eat marshmallows, the people who did the math problems will eat more marshmallows than the ones who
1: did not. Yeah, it's a powerful point, like the idea of not even having to make the choice, Right that's it's a powerful point you're speaking to just not like spending you know if you're going to have a you know, like schedule one day a month we're going to have the you know fill in the blank that way it's not a constant you know open-ended decision that you have to make
0: yes and this is part of the answer to the question that you asked me earlier like if you're going to a restaurant with a bunch of other people how do you resist the social pressure part of what you do is make your decisions beforehand maybe you will look at the menu online and write down exactly what you're going to eat beforehand and just stick to that Or maybe you have a rule that says, I never eat bread except in a restaurant twice per calendar week when I can have two slices at my option. Because then you've defined the boundaries of exactly what you're going to do and you're not going to do. And you know that a restaurant is a very tempting social environment, Um, but you don't have to make decisions at the restaurant. And since temptation requires willpower to resist, if you eliminate it in the willpower, you can often do just fine. And I've had a lot of experience with people who are totally out of control with bread, for example, that makes some very well-defined rules like this uh, with crystal clear boundaries and then don't have a problem with it again. There really is something to this.
1: Yeah. It's something that I've done a lot of as well, making what I call my game plan Which is kind of, you know, my rules would be an easier way to say that, but I call it game plan just to kind of make it more friendly. But it's just like the ways that I want to operate with food. That way I feel like I have the structure that you're talking about. And it's a fluid document that kind of gets changed as time, as I, you know, I evolve and as my situation does and as, you know, new things come up, I'm able to. You know, iterate that, but I think that that really helps me just to have some sort of framework to rely on, kind of like what you said. You know, it's like the, you have a very similar method as well in your book. And I probably was inspired by the book, your book in a big way as I continue to create that. I want to get back to the social norm stuff because it sounds like you had some great stuff to share around the, so, the societal pressures that we all feel, most people feel around food. Okay. First of all, the social pressure
0: comes from more than just people's desire to eat what they want to without feeling guilty. That's what people really understand on the surface is that when I'm getting together with everybody in a restaurant that they, you know, they want to have something indulgent and they want everybody else to have something indulgent so they feel okay about it. But if you think back to our origins and how, you know, this, this world of abundant food and a diversity of food was not always available. There were most likely times, or probably most of the time, that everybody's labor in a tribe was required to either catch or grow enough food to feed the tribe, that you might have a harvest of a single food item at one time, or a buffalo or something like that, and that it would be a burden on the tribe if someone refused to eat, got weak, or got sick. I think when you imagine that, you can recognize that the fabric of our society actually required that people eat the same thing. So there, there was none of this rugged individualism where people say, "I, you know, I feel like pizza tonight, or I feel like steak, or I feel like, you know, eating vegan." It was more like, "Eat what there is, or we'll kill you." Right? Step <laughs> step <laughs> out of line, and we'll kill you. And I believe that that's built into our DNA. I believe that when people come together as a group. There is a field called evolutionary psychology where we look at our thoughts and behaviors as um, something that's evolved for an adaptive purpose. And I think that we probably evolved for an adaptive purpose, even though it's no longer useful to get everybody else to eat what we were eating. So when you don't do what everybody else is doing, I think that there's an underlying unconscious anxiety that the fabric of the tribe, so to speak, is falling apart. Then I want you to understand that the property of groupness, the feeling like we are a tribe that lives by norms that we all adopt and ways of behavior that we all adopt in order to cohere together and accomplish a purpose, a family, a tribe, that 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 feeling is not stable. We'd We'd like for it to be stable, but it requires that you spend time together interacting. So for example, walk into an elevator even before COVID and there are 12 people. What everybody does in an elevator normatively is create as much distance between each other as they can. They look forward. They don't allow their arms to touch. They basically don't talk. And you could prove this to yourself that this is not a group, something we call an aggregate, which is a non-group collection of a bunch of people. You can prove this to yourself as you're getting off on the 12th floor or something, you say to them, Hey, this was really fun. Let's all get together here next year. (laughs) They're all going to look at you like you're crazy. Maybe they'll laugh. Probably they won't because they're busy being socially distant and maintaining that non-groupness. But now imagine that the elevator gets stuck and three hours later, the repairmen show up and open the elevator. What you're probably going to see are that people are sitting together in little groups. You're probably going to see them interacting and talking. They probably will have developed some norms for how to handle the situation. What do you do when someone really has to go to the bathroom? Well, we all sing a silly song to them, right? Maybe someone had a deck of cards with them. Probably not, but maybe they did. Maybe they had some kind of a game they were playing to pass the time. They probably came up with a rule about how often you were allowed to press the call button for help. They probably had some type of a rule for calming people down if they were panicked. The interaction and the necessity of solving a problem together it created this quality of groupness. And now if you say the same thing, that group would would laugh in a more friendly and warm way, and it would actually have some meaning. And some people might actually say, we should get together. So let's go back to a situation where you're walking in to see the family for the first time for Thanksgiving. It's almost Thanksgiving, so this is relevant. Yeah. You're, walk, you're walking in to see your family for Thanksgiving, and mom comes running up to you, and and she says, here, honey, I made your favorite chocolate cake. It's really good. I use your favorite chocolate chips. Here, have some. What most people do in that situation is say, oh, I can't do that anymore. I'm on a diet, right? Well, what have you done when you do that? You are rejecting her attempt to love you back into the tribe. She's trying to say, come break bread with us. This is what we do in this tribe. We're here to celebrate. Let's restore the bond and the strength of the fabric of our tribe together. Let's make it a real group again, even though we haven't seen each other for a while. She's trying to bridge that gap. She doesn't know that's what she's trying to do, but that's what she's trying to do. You're really rejecting her when you're saying that I'm on a diet that's not good for me, besides the fact you're making her feel guilty that she might want to eat it. You're triggering that fear that the fabric of her group is going to fall apart. So what do you do instead? You come up with an alternative love gift that she can use to welcome you back into the tribe. Hey, mom, you know what? I ate a little too much for lunch and my stomach's a little upset. Do you think you have any mint tea? Could you get me some mint tea? I would really love it. And then she goes, of course, honey. And she goes running off and gets it for you. It could be also, it doesn't have to be food or drink. You could say, um, you know, mom, I'm really cold. The Heater wasn't working so well in the car. And um, do you happen to have a sweater? It's a little cold in here for me. Maybe Michael has a sweater I could wear, her husband. Or you could just ask for information. Mom, I'm dying to see the score in the Jets game. This was maybe a little more relevant before the internet where you had a smartphone and you could check (laughs) on the way over, but, but you know what I'm saying? If there's some information you can ask for, maybe it's, could you tell me what happened with my sister and the, um, the college application? Maybe it's something you can't find on the internet. You're asking for a gift that she can give you to welcome you back in the tribe and feel like you love her and she loves you. And it doesn't have to do anything with food. And you'll be amazed at how that pressure goes away. So, so between Figuring out exactly what you're going to have beforehand, or you don't have to do that for every little thing you're going to have, but maybe what you're going to have for dessert or maybe what you're going to have in terms of the chips or the dips or something like that, things that are going to be um, of concern and have caused you to overeat in the past. You figure out exactly what you're going to have beforehand. Sometimes it's good to designate that as a day you're not trying to lose weight and you might want to make a little treat for yourself and put it in your refrigerator and Tupperware so you know when you get home, you'll be able to have it, or take it with you in the car so you're going to have it on the drive home. So a lot of people can hold up really well at the social event but then they fall apart when they're after. So so between that and um, you know the alternative love gift, you can diffuse a lot of the social pressure and you can eliminate the willpower that's necessary to deal with it. And that's the end of my long-winded answer.
1: Wow, that's really... Um... Refreshing. I actually think that can work. I feel like I'm the kind of guy who's often saying, Oh, I don't eat that. I you know, I don't eat sugar. I don't eat weed. I can't I'm always that pain in the ass guest when it comes to food. And I think this is a really great strategy, is basically go in you know, guns blazing, so to speak with like, Hey, you know, Hey, you know, can I have a tea or something like that with, you know, just like kind of making, taking the first playing. It's basically playing more offense than defense instead of saying, no, I can't, you're saying, please. Can I have? Yes. And I think that makes the other person feel seen, valuable, loved, and that you want the needed and everything else that makes, like you said, makes everyone feel connected again. So the tribe feels whole and then there's no like space. and And then, and then there's less of the other person needing to put pressure on you to eat the chocolate chip cake, so to speak, or whatever it was, because they already feel the way they need it to feel, like they feel connected to you.
0: That's very true. They're just looking for the feeling and and you haven't challenged their desire to eat what they want to eat. But there's one more consideration. Essentially, you were saying you feel like a weenie because you're the guy who says, I'm not going to have this, this, or this. But if you care about these people, if you love these people, even if you just like them, someone needs to lead the way and show them that it's possible to not slowly kill themselves with food and society the way that everybody seems to be doing. And whereas you might be feeling like you're doing a bad thing and like you're going against the tribe and you know you're making them feel bad, well, when they see your results, people often tell me that my skin glows these days. Um, it's, it's really because of the aggressive purging of I don't mean like binging purging. I mean the purging of processed food from my diet and I find that when people hang around me for a while, they start to eat better. And I, I'm proud of that. I don't feel like I'm annoying them. I don't feel like I'm you know, being a party pooper. I'm proud that I showed them that it was possible to eat better. And maybe they won't have a heart attack or a stroke, um, or at least they won't have it for 10 years later than they were going to have it. And I love these people. You know, I don't get together with people that I hate. So why wouldn't I eat well and show them?
1: Yeah. I think that's a, another powerful point. I feel very similar that I feel like most of the time people are inspired to eat healthier. And I feel like the offensive move that you shared is just another tool to incorporate and just being so, you know, social, social gatherings and social settings. And yeah, I think it's a great, great thing. I'm I'm definitely going to try it out and I'll report back what kind of results I get. Thanks for sharing. I want to um, segue into your work now uh, and, and, and the kind of things that you're up to. I know you got this amazing book, um, Never Binge Again. I would love to talk a little bit about that.
0: Well, the um, book took off and or I, knew it. I, I was getting divorced, by the way, when I wrote the book. So it's maybe a little more aggressive than it needed to be, but it really seems to resonate with people. So we left it as it was. The book too, uh, took off and we started getting a lot of requests for personal coaching and the book has everything you need, by the way, to be able to solve the problem. We, This is not one of those things where we um, held back so that people would pay for coaching. I really, I mean, this was the bane of my existence for 25 years. Primary thing that would be different is that I wouldn't call it a pick. And I might use slightly, slightly less angry. <laughs> However, what distinguishes this method from a lot of other like inner work is that we don't think of the pig or the reptilian brain, as your inner wounded child. I like the inner wounded child concept in terms of psychological growth, but I find that it doesn't lead to enough separation from the destructive thoughts. Remember, we're defining a pig's wheel as any thought, feeling, or impulse that suggests that you cross the line that you drew with your best thinking about how you should be eating. And so by definition, anything that the pig says is against your best interest and it doesn't care. The pig is actually sociopathic by definition. What this allows you to do is muster the energy and aggression that you need to take control like an alpha wolf. I mean, if you think about it, an alpha wolf, if it's challenged for leadership in the pack, does not say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. It growls and it snarls and it says, get back in line or I'll kill you. It asserts its superiority. So, this is a game of ruthless domination. It's not a game of nurturing your inner wounded child back to health. You can do that separately. This is not your inner wounded child. You have to take control in an aggressive way because, first of all, you're fighting the big food and big advertising industries who have billions of dollars and lots of rocket scientists who are working against you. So, you need an aggressive approach to create that separation and that um, space between stimulus and response where you can actually make choices again. Secondly, you need that level of aggression to take control of the pig because it's a survival drive gone wrong. You know, this is why we have jokes like just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. (laughs) You're, You're jumping into your primitive self and all your best thinking will go out the window. When the freeze, flight, or fight response comes into play, when the feast or famine response comes into play, it really says, it really feels with every bone of your body that you're starving. And that if you don't do this, regardless of what you thought or or wrote down before, that you're going to die. And so your, you know, feelings aren't facts. And we all rationally know that we're not going to die. They're not going to find our bones by the refrigerator, most of us, if we don't have that chocolate bar or know stay to one plate of food at dinner but it doesn't feel like that it it feels like you literally will die and without being able to summon a very primitive aggressive response you can't create the space and you wind up thinking that those thoughts are true at the moment and then of course after you have you say why did I do this even though part of my aggression with the divorce went into the book it's still A big part of what makes the system work. I wouldn't have called it a pig because a lot of people, particularly women, were called pigs when they were younger. And it's not what I meant at all. And, And by the way, when people gain control over their impulses, they feel better about themselves, not worse. If you listen to, you know, listen to our coaching demonstrations, you will see that we take people from feeling Despairing and hopeless and powerless over food to feeling hopeful and enthusiastic and powerful and, you know, in just one session. This is a self esteem, life enhancing, positive process, despite the fact that Mordecai has a weird doctor with a pig inside of him on the call today.
1: (laughs) I think you're. Your process is very useful for a lot of people, obviously. You've sold a lot of books. I, I've recommended your book before, and I, I've gotten a great, great response. You'll really resonate with it. So I agree with that statement. You know, we're we're, ch- we're we're individually challenging a multi-billion dollar industry. It takes a lot of commitment in whichever way that shows up for you. And like you said, once you get that control, we both know once you're in the driver's seat, your life turns around in big ways. So absolutely. Sure does.
0: Just wanted to cover a few more of the basics, and then I want to talk about discipline versus freedom. The main objection people have for this is that it's it's too disciplined. So I had this rule at the beginning that I'll never have chocolate except for Saturday and Sunday. But then I played with a whole bunch of other rules, and the process I went through was one of realizing that it was silly to break my own rules. I could make any rule I want to. I was not following some doctor's diet. I was not doing what someone told me that I had to do. I was making up my own rules and following them. And at some point when I recognized that I had the power to do that, I would soften up on my rules to the point, I would lower the bar enough that I would actually do it. And I found that actually following the rules gave me all the confidence in the world so that I wouldn't be making mistakes. I mean, not that I never did, but when when I would come up with a low bar, a set of rules that I could really follow, I would make more progress than if I tried to jump too high to start. and I kind of set up some categories for rules so you could you could add foods also you could add positive behaviors like I will always drink you know two glasses of pure spring water before I check my email in the morning. you could have more conditional rules say I, I will never have pretzels except for major league baseball games. you could completely eliminate things if you needed to as long as you leave yourself you have to feed your body but as long as you were, Feeding your body appropriate nutrition. And you could say, I will, um, you know, I'll never have chocolate again or I'll never have flour again. And people think that's crazy. But then when you do it, it's pretty amazing what happens. And when I started working with clients, I realized that it was much more important for the first week or two to get them to start with one simple rule than to get them to lose weight right away. And even then, to eliminate all of their binge behavior, if we could just show them that you could follow one simple rule, and so people would say things like, I'll never go back for seconds again. You know, this truck driver who ate fast food all day long, and he began his 150-pound weight loss by saying, I'll never go back for seconds again. I would hear people say things like, I'll, I'll never eat in front of a television again, or I'll always put my fork down between bites. You can make behavioral rules that didn't require you to give up any particular kind of food. The limit's your own imagination. When I started playing with those rules and realizing how important it was to come up with an autonomous food plan that I actually would follow, rather than letting my pig say there was something wrong with this doctor's plan or that doctor's plan, that's when I find people make the most progress. That's certainly when I made the most progress is when I really, um, really embraced the autonomy and embraced the idea that I would lose weight slowly. And what was much more important was that I become the master of my impulses. I become my pig's master, not its slave. So that's what I wanted to say about that.
1: I'm with you. I love the idea of having those never rules, but uh, I actually, I do have one question, which is when you make these never again rules, are they ever up for negotiation in your mind? Okay. That's a 50 cent question too.
0: <laughs> when I was younger, my niece was two years old and she tried to cross the street without me. And I said, Sarah. You can't ever, 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 ever again cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, 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 ever. Now, if you think about it, that was a lie because I knew that she was going to mature. And at some point, my sister and her husband or myself would teach her how to cross the street or on her own by looking both ways. Because she's only two years old and doesn't have the impulse control control. I don't want her to even entertain the notion. I don't want that image in her head. God forbid I'm walking somewhere with her and she darts out because the image came into her head. So I said, never, ever, ever. When she got older, we taught her how to do it. It's similar with your food plan. You kind of have to lie to your pig. And I don't think there's a problem with that because um, your pig has been lying to you for a lifetime. Wow. Right? You present to your pig as if the rules are set in stone because your pig is not mature enough with food. To think otherwise but over the years you will experiment with different rules and things will evolve you'll also gain nutritional knowledge i remember a time when i had a rule that i said i would always eat nuts with dried fruit if i was going to have dried fruit i had to have nuts with it because at the time the prevailing nutritional wisdom was that that slowed down the glycemic load of the nuts and made a digest of the sugar but it made it digest more slowly a few years after that I was talking to a doctor and he said that there was new research that it was actually the opposite. It would have been foolhardy for me me to stick to my, I'll never be tried fruit without nuts again, when there was new scientific information that said it was actually bad to do that. So I have to remain open to changing my food plan. What you do is you have a procedure to avoid doing it impulsively because the essence of food addiction is eating on whim or desire as opposed to making a list of your troublesome food behaviors and triggers and having a plan for how you're going to bound and control those foods and triggers. So when I want to change something, I will sit down and write out exactly what will they really want to change and what I want to change it to. Then I'll write exa- exactly why I believe that it would be better. And then this is really the key I will not allow that law to go into effect for 48 hours. Uh, it's kind of like a legislative waiting period or something like that, <laughs> But because then I know that I didn't do it impulsively. Like if I have a real craving for chocolate right now, which I haven't cra- haven't had cravings for chocolate in years, but if I did, I would go through that procedure. And I know there's there's nothing I can't have in 48 hours if I really want it. But when you force yourself through that intellectual procedure, you're putting yourself back in your right mind, which made the rule in the first place. And, I find that the changes are relatively rare. So, and then the other thing is people believe that if they make a mistake, that then all bets are off. If you were aiming at the bullseye of an archery target and you missed, you wouldn't take all the arrows and shoot them up in the air and say, forget it, I'm a pathetic archer. You wouldn't shoot them into the audience to do damage. You would say, by how much did I miss the bullseye? In what direction? And therefore... What adjustments should I make? And people are afraid of this. They're afraid of defining an exact bullseye because they think if they miss the bullseye, then they're going to go off the rails. But you're not supposed to go off the rails. You're not supposed to run every red light if you accidentally run one red light in town. You're supposed to say, how can I pay more attention to the red light? <laughs> so, mm. But it's more fun to go off the rails with, um, with food. And so they go along with that crazy logic.
1: This is really, really helpful. Thanks for clarifying.
0: Where can people find out more about your work? It's really simple. Go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button. When you do that, you'll get to the reader's bonus list. Sign up for that. And I will give you three things, among others, but three things for free that are very helpful. One is a copy of the book in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. The electronic formats are free. You can also, there'll be links to the physical books if you want them or the audible copy. And those have a charge to them. You'll find all the rest of our books there too. I've written six more books since that point about nighttime eating, about specific binge triggers. I've been at this for a while. Um, the other things you'll get for free are a set of food plan starter templates. So if you'd like to see some sample rules that people have used on a you know on a ketogenic diet, on a macrobiotic diet, on a point counting, calorie counting, vegan um, low carb, high carb, whatever your dietary philosophy is, you're likely to find a set of rules that we've thought through. And we call them starter templates because we're not giving you a diet. We're not qualified to give you a diet. And it doesn't work when we give people diets because then they don't have an autonomous planet to take responsibility for. And the last thing you'll find is probably the most valuable is a set of recorded coaching sessions so that you can hear what we talked about before, how this process works in reality as opposed to uh, hearing a weird doctor talk about the pig inside of it. NeverBingeAgain.com, click the big red button.
1: Hey, one more thing before we say goodbye. My goal is to make Feeling Full the best possible podcast you listen to. And I love your feedback. If you have comments, ideas for future shows, guests, or topics, or just feedback in general, you can email me at m at feelingfull.com. You can also find out more about the show and all the past episodes at feelingfull.com. And if you found this episode valuable, please share it with a friend or leave a review. Until the next episode, take care, be well, and feel full.